0: When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he was giving to his disciples not only a way of seeing the world, but a way of being in the world. He preached this sermon giving theology and giving ethics. He gives at every portion of the sermon... A biblical worldview, a way of understanding and of seeing and perceiving, but he also sought to give his disciples a way of being, a way of conducting themselves in the world, which is to say the Sermon on the Mount is intensely practical. Jesus aims to shape our vision, but also to direct our feet. And in this text today, he gives some of the most practical counsel anywhere in the sermon, counsel as it relates to anxiety. Jesus here speaks of an issue which I believe we all wrestle with in some measure and in some way. And it may be that some here are overwhelmed by anxiety that this is such an issue for some that they are crippled by anxiety. I've prayed for you this week that this text would free you. That God would work in some way by his spirit this morning so that there would be a letting go of anxiety. Jesus wants us to live life. He wants us to live and to flourish and to enjoy all the good things that God has given to us. And so three times in this text, he says, do not be anxious, understanding the crippling power of anxiety. And my prayer is that God would so work through Jesus's words this morning that we would let go of our anxieties, and live the way that God would intend us to live. Now, the text is long. It's longer than the standard unit within the sermon, and it's very convoluted as an argument. Jesus gives commands, he illustrates, and he asks many questions throughout It's difficult to break down the text and really to grasp hold of what is the structure and the form of Jesus' argument, but there are in these verses, I believe, at least six reasons that Jesus gives us to not be anxious. So I want to work through those six reasons this morning in the order that they're presented and ask our Father in heaven to work in our hearts. The first reason that Jesus gives for us to not be anxious is very simply because life is more. Do not be anxious because life is more. Verse 25, he says, therefore, we could actually stop there. That word is really important. It connects this text to the previous text connects what Jesus is saying here to what he has just said, so don't overlook the very first word, therefore. Think back to the previous few verses. Jesus says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He says, ensure your eye, verse 22, is single. You remember from last week, ensure that your eye is single. You cannot serve as a slave, both God and money, the idea in the previous unit is not that Jesus is calling his disciples to live a monastic lifestyle. Jesus does not expect his disciples to be given over 100% 24 7 reading the scriptures and praying. He's not calling his disciples to live a life of isolation where all they do is ponder the words of God and pray in response. Jesus wants his disciples to be in the world, living active lives, sharing the truth of the gospel with others. When he says, render your eye as single, when he compels us to be single-minded... He is exhorting us to embrace a biblical worldview, that is to see the world as God sees it. He wants us to be in the world, but he wants us to see the world as God sees it. That is to say, he wants us to have the same priorities that God has. You cannot serve as a slave God and money. To try to serve as a slave both God and money is to place a priority on money or material things that God does not place on money and material things. You are seeing the world improperly. The previous unit called the disciples of the Lord Jesus to be single-minded, that is to develop a way of seeing and thinking and living that is in accordance with how God sees and thinks and lives. Therefore, Do not be anxious. So you understand the connection. If we don't heed Jesus' words in verse 19 through 24, if our eye is not single, if our mind is not single-minded, if we have not developed a way of thinking that mirrors God's way of thinking, then it gives rise to anxiety. We've placed on certain aspects of our lives a prioritization, a a weight, a value that God does not place on them. We see the world in a distorted manner. And so Jesus naturally then addresses the issue of anxiety. You need to be single-minded. You need to have a mind that reflects God's mind. Think about the world he does, and that is what frees you from anxiety. As a footnote, it is... One of your foremost responsibilities as a Christian to develop a biblical worldview. One of your foremost responsibilities as a Christian is to be ever studying, working, thinking so as to train your mind and your heart to be in tune with the priorities that you find in Scripture. Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, drink, or your body, what you will put on, he uses the example of food and clothing, which would have been very real to his hearers on the mountain that day. First century agrarian society, it would be very real to them if there had been a flood or a drought. Now the father of the home, is wondering, truly, how will I feed my family in the months to come? That's a real issue for Jesus' hearers. And certainly, it may not be that you feel that particular example as a source of anxiety in your life, but Jesus allows and, in fact, teaches that anxiety can come in through any means the food and the clothing is but two examples. Notice his use in verse 25 of the words life and body. Do not be anxious about your life, which pertains to your spiritual existence, the word used there, or your body, which speaks about your physical body matter. That change in terminology is intentional. What Jesus creates there is what we call a merism. A merism is where you invoke two ideas that are not synonymous, they're not the same, and by bringing them both into view, the implication is everything in between. So if I said to you, God will be praised on the mountaintops, and God will be praised in the valleys, I pick two different locations, one of great height and one very, very low down, and the implication is God will be praised everywhere. That's the merism, and Jesus uses these two examples speaking about the life, the spiritual, and the body, the physical, to say anything. There should be no cause for anxiety, or to put it negatively, anxiety can come into your life through any avenue. Many years ago, I struggled with anxiety, Specifically as it related to environments where I knew there would be many people. Long before I had decided to pursue vocational ministry, I an introvert by nature. And journeying to church on a Sunday would be an anxious time. I would go out to the prayer meeting in the middle of the week and it would be an anxious Time of the week for me. I was anxious about being somewhere where lots of other people were and the many interactions that come with that. And it really bothered me. As this kept going on and on, it really bothered me because I thought to myself, I don't want this to deprive me an enjoyment of church. I don't want anxiety to stop me enjoying the things of the Lord. I don't want anxiety to stop me enjoying God's people. Or, you might say, my thought was, life is more than this. There is more to life than this. I was, as it were, seeing life out of proportion. I was placing an undue weight on that set of circumstances, a weight that God was not placing on it. I was not single-minded. I had not come joyfully under his reign, and it was not informing me of how to think about interactions with others. I was seeing the world out of proportion. So I prayed that God would take this away, And that he would help me to think about church and the midweek prayer meeting as he thinks about it. You see, the solution that Jesus infers here in verse 25 is not to consider food and drink and clothing as of zero importance. The antidote to anxiety is not to attribute zero value to the things around us. Jesus would say it's important that you feed yourself. But rather that you see these things in accordance with the plan that God has laid out in his word. That food and clothing and drink and faces with lots of people would fit into properly the priorities that God gives through his word. If you were to read through Genesis to Revelation, you would never conclude that food is the central concern of God. It's important but it fits into a much bigger picture, and what Jesus commends us to do is to recalibrate, is to understand that which would cause us anxiety within its proper place. Now, to recalibrate is, in a sense, very easy. It is to situate your life in this book, to pray that God would teach you what his priorities are. And you'll see that all of the earthly things that cause us anxiety are of importance to him. He cares for your health, and he cares that you provide, and he cares for your family and your relationships, but none of those are of utmost importance. If you situate your life in this book, what you will see is that God's utmost concern as it relates to you is that your sins have been dealt with. If you situate yourself in this book, you will learn that God's utmost concern for you is that you are in a right relationship with Him. God's utmost concern for you is that you would be in eternity in a right relationship, enjoying Him and His Son forever. They are the priorities that His Word lays out. And the wonderful news today is that if you are a Christian then your sins have been dealt with. You are at peace with God and you will indeed be in eternity forever with him. So do not be anxious because life is more. Second reason, do not be anxious because your father has a plan. Verse 26, Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So Jesus here gives us the first of two illustrations that he uses in this passage, and he appeals to the birds of the air who are not anxious. Certainly they go out, they look for food, they gather, but they don't do so in an anxious manner. And by way of that illustration, Jesus then invokes, as it were, two theological realities, again, both evident in his word, two the- theological realities that are not disconnected, but are related and show us that God has a plan, and his plan is a means by which we cannot be anxious. The first thing, theological reality that Jesus appeals to here is simply the theology of creation as it's found in the very first chapter of your Bibles Genesis chapter 1 you understand God created the fish of the sea and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and they are important to him he cares for them but none of them Assume the privileged place that we assume within the created order. Genesis chapter 1, the very last act of creation, is humanity. And more than that, God places his image upon us. We are the only thing in all of creation that receives the image of God. And that image-bearing privilege speaks of God's plan. Genesis chapter 1, God sets his image on humanity and then instructs them to fill the earth. The image bearing is that of representation. You are to represent me the whole world over. You see, God's intention, his plan, is that the whole earth would be filled with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. That is God's Plan And he sets his image upon us, understanding that we would be foremost in the accomplishment of that plan. And so we hold this privileged position as Jesus says, look at the birds provided for, not anxious. They're not foremost in God's plan. So then you don't be anxious. Acknowledge the place that you hold in his glorious plan and do not be anxious. But there is a second theological truth that is invoked in this illustration. Notice the language that Jesus uses as he references God. Your heavenly father, he says. So important all the way through the sermon as Jesus speaks about God as our father, Again, he brings into view that wonderful doctrine of our adoption. This is not unrelated from creation theology and the plan. You see, the narrative progresses, as you know, after Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Then we get to Genesis chapter 3, and Adam and Eve sin, they transgress. Sin now enters into the cosmos. And now it would seem the plan has been shipwrecked, ruined. But God responds and issues a promise in that chapter. He says, I am going to send a seed to make wrong the rights. To make rights the wrong. <laughs> he doesn't want to make wrong the rights. He wants to make right the wrongs, And the seed will. The seed will come. His name is Jesus. And he will live perfectly He will do what Adam failed to do, and then ultimately he will die on a cross. And his blood has a value. His blood has a sin-atoning worth. So that all that would look upon Christ and find him to be a sufficient Savior, he who can pay for our sins, if you behold Christ in that manner, your sins will be dealt with. And now you are called a child of God such that you can appeal to God as your heavenly father. And it is through that sin atoning worth on the cross that now the plan keeps moving forward. You see, the two are not unrelated. We have this creation theology in Genesis 1 where we understand God put his image on us and said, I want the whole earth to be full of my glory. Go, fill the earth. And then we have the cross of Jesus Christ, which is a response to the sin of humanity. And God is saying, through him, I will make sure the plan is accomplished. And so as you are brought into that plan and you call yourself a child of God, as God calls you, understand again, you are foremost in the plan. On the last day, the plan will be accomplished. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And everything and everyone will contribute to the manifestation of God's glory. The rocks will glorify God. And the trees will glorify God. Those who have rejected Christ will glorify God. Through their judgment, there will be a manifestation of God's glory. But none of that will compare to the glory rendered unto the Father through the saints who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. The highest expression of glory on the last day comes from the redeemed. They sit central to the plan as they gather around the throne of the Lord Jesus. And so when Jesus himself gives this very brief illustration to look at the birds of the air and to consider your heavenly father, there is so much for you to meditate upon and to take in. And he wants you to realize that God has a plan. And as you bring your thoughts in line with his plan, it is to be an antidote to your anxiety. If I had asked you this morning when you walked in, does God have a plan? You would say, of course he does. If I had said to you, will he accomplish his plan? Now you would laugh at me. Of course he will. And so you readily embrace those two realities. Perhaps the one step missing that you have not factored into your heart and your mind and your thinking is the centrality that Christians have in that plan. He sent his son for you. He sent his son to die that your sins would be forgiven and now you become a vessel of his glory the whole world over. Therefore, don't be anxious. This illustration is Jesus' version of what Paul gives us in Romans 8, that God is working out all things for the good of those who love Him. All things for good. That's a forward-looking verse. There is a working out on God's part in your life for an ultimate final good. Which is to say if you don't have it, God has determined you don't need it. Is given to you what you need to play your part in the plan. And as you think about the reality of your heavenly father sending his son to die for you. And you bearing God's image, it is to be for you an antidote to your anxiety. So I'd encourage you this morning to look forward. To set your mind regularly on the truth of Christ. Revealed on his throne. Delight to allow your heart to go there. And ask that God would allow that glorious, biblical, coming soon vision to inform the way in which you think about the world around you. Third reason, don't be anxious because you are not in control. Verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? You see how Jesus keeps asking one question after another so as to open up for us, as it were, a theology of anxiety. And this question here is so probing, so telling, so revealing. Anxiety... Always sits within a cluster of other emotions, other realities. Anxiety sits as a pivot between other realities in our heart. It's never isolated. Downstream of anxiety, there is often resentment, bitterness, anger. Ingratitude, anxiety can cause those sinful responses. Upstream of anxiety, anxiety is not the first thing, upstream of anxiety is pride. Now, it's not a flagrant, obnoxious, self parading kind of pride. It's not a pride that boasts. It's not a pride that asks people to look at you. It's not that kind of pride. It is so much more subtle. It is a pride that exists somewhere in your heart whereby you are trying to assume a responsibility that is not yours. It's a pride that is borne out through a desire for control. It's a pride that reveals itself in you trying to control that which is out with your control. Some years ago, we had some issues, health issues, with one of our kids. <coughs> he was very young and had this recurring problem that was causing us anxiety. We spoke to doctors about it, and they all said there really is nothing we can do for this. It will pass within time, and so you just need to allow him to grow, and it will be fine. But the issues were real. They were so real that one day, he had an episode, and we thought we had lost him. And I think back to that time, What would Jesus have said to us? He wouldn't say the life of your child is unimportant. Again, the antidote to anxiety is not to disavow everything around you. He wouldn't say it's wrong to care for him. But he would say it is not your job to add a single day to his life it would say you're trying to control something that is out with your control. You didn't choose to give him these issues. I did. You can't determine when they leave him. I will. And it is the same with every form of anxiety. It is a downstream reality of a desire to control that which we... Re- God has not asked us to control. And I know for some here this morning, there is an anxiety in your life, a form of anxiety which is crippling. You feel paralyzed by it. And I know it's hard to hear that there is a pride giving rise to that. You think, I'm not choosing to be like this. Not choosing this anxiety. I don't delight in it. But the reality is, at some level, When we are anxious, we are trying to do that which God does not expect us to do. And that is why to deal with anxiety demands a humbling of our hearts. Peter writes about this in his first epistle, chapter 5 of 1 Peter. He says, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And we love to go to that verse and we Printed on our fridge magnets and we put it on our greeting cards, don't divorce it from its context. Don't divorce it from its context. Prior to that encouraging verse is Peter's exhortation to humble yourself. Humble yourself, Peter says, so that at the right time God will exalt you. Speaking about the final day of glorification, humble yourself now. Eventually he will exalt you. And then he says, cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. You see the relationship that God's word gives to us between humility and anxiety. You humble yourself understanding who you are, who you are not, what God has asked you to do and what he has not asked you to do. Humble yourself and with everything that is not yours, you cast it upon the Father. This is not mine to control. I can't control this. It is yours. And you give it to him so that you would not be anxious. And in reality, there really are very, very, very few things that we can control. We can't control our circumstances. We can't control other people's behavior. What the Word of God does ask us to control is our response to our circumstances. Do not be anxious because you're not in control. Fourth reason, do not be anxious because God is wise. Verses 28 and 29, Jesus gives his second illustration. He says, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow it's thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? It sits very much parallel to the first example. It employs that same logic of the lesser to the greater. He's appealing to the the flowers in the field, and he says, look how wonderful they are, and yet their their time is fleeting, it's passing. You are not, and God values you so much more. It's a very similar example, but notice the phrase that Jesus adds onto the end of this to conclude his thought, oh, you of little faith. It's so instructive. There are three other times when Jesus uses this phrase within Matthew's gospel, The next time is in chapter 8, when the disciples are caught up in a storm on a boat. They believe themselves to be perishing, and Jesus rebukes them. You little, you of little faith. In chapter 14, they're in a boat again, and now Peter walks on water, at least for a time. And then he starts to sink, and fearing that he would drown, Jesus rebukes him. You of little faith. In chapter 16, the disciples have no bread to eat, and Jesus rebukes them and says, you have little faith. Outside of the Bible, this same phrase is used with reference to the Old Testament Israelites, specifically when they chose to gather food on the Sabbath. They didn't adhere to God's plan, they went to gather food, not trusting that he would indeed provide, and so they're rendered as those who are of little faith. The common point amongst all of the uses is that these are folks who fail to trust in God's plan. The disciples were failing to trust in God's plan. The Israelites failed to trust in God's plan. And so you see the reality that Jesus is teaching us is not only that there is a plan and not only that God will most certainly accomplish the plan, but the means by which he will get there is perfect. There is a plan and God will accomplish it. And know this, the means by which he will get us to the last day is absolutely perfect. It is an exhortation to trust in God's wisdom. It's the same logic that we read of this morning in Isaiah 40. Such a wonderful chapter, not least because of those opening words when God himself says to the Israelites, comfort, comfort my people. Your warfare is ended. Your iniquities have been paid for. It was an announcement that Isaiah made that they would be coming back from exile. And perhaps understandably, they might say, how can we be certain of this comfort? We've just spent all these years in exile. We're away from our promised land. The temple itself has been destroyed. How can we now be certain of this comfort, which is exactly why for the rest of the chapter, God unpacks his inscrutable and unsearchable wisdom. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who knows his plans and can understand him? Who has taught God his wisdom? Is not our wisdom. His ways are not our ways. We are called to trust in His plan. We are called to wait upon Him. Same as the saints were in that day. If we find ourselves in a storm, we are to trust in His plan. If we find ourselves to be sinking, we are to trust in His plan. Again, The antidote to anxiety is not to stop caring. We respond. We find ourselves in a storm. We are to respond, to act responsibly, to lean on others, to seek help, and to do what we can to address the situation. But the point is we do it without anxiety because it is part of God's plan. In so much as it has happened, we can be certain it is part of God's plan. And if it is part of God's plan, we see within it the shining providence of God. His wisdom is perfect. And thus, through this example, Jesus would instruct us simply to take God at his word. To be one who is not of little faith means to be one who is trusting So that Jesus would not say to us, you of little faith, we are to be those who take God at his word. You see, the faith to which Jesus commends us this day is not some mystical experience. The solution to your anxiety is not some kind of mystical experience that God has not granted you yet. It is a very simple readiness to take God at his word. We read the Word of God, and we choose to believe it. We read the Word of God, and we choose to walk in a path that honors it. Contrary to the inclinations of the flesh that would have us be anxious, with God's grace and with the help of others, we choose to walk in a path of obedience that honors His Word and see how it addresses your anxiety. Fifth reason, do not be anxious because you are a child of God. Verses 31 through to 33, Jesus says for the second time, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious saying, what should we eat, what should we drink, or what should we wear. He's summarizing everything that he's said thus far. And then he says in verse 32 for do not be anxious the Gentiles are. Don't be anxious because the Gentiles are anxious. They seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Now this use of Gentiles, as we've seen already in the sermon, is so important. Pay attention to the various groups that Jesus invokes throughout his preaching. It's always so instructive, he's not doing it arbitrarily. He invokes particular groups in order to make specific theological points. He speaks about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He speaks about the religious leaders in order to talk about hypocrisy. He speaks about the Gentiles in order to talk about our belonging to God's family. You'll remember this from when we were studying the Lord's Prayer, and it began so importantly, don't pray like the Gentiles do. That one statement opens up the whole theology of the prayer. Don't pray like the Gentiles do, meaning they do not know whether they have the ear of their God. They don't know whether their chosen God is going to be favorable towards them. is going to listen to them. And so they work themselves into a frenzy, trying to display their own righteousness in the desire to be heard. Don't pray like them. You're a child of God. You have access to your Father whenever you choose to come to Him. Not because of anything you've done that day, but because of the blood of Christ. You have access to Jesus, to God the Father, because of the blood of Christ. Same theology in view here. Don't be anxious because the Gentiles are They can't appeal to their God with certainty and security and confidence. Nor can they have any certainty that their fears and anxieties will be dealt with. I wonder even whether Jesus would have said, I can understand why the Gentiles are anxious. Their anxiety is fully understandable. They have no place to go. They do not have a loving, heavenly Father to which to appeal. They are anxious, and rightly so. This is why there is today a multi-million dollar industry pushing out products and schemes that supposedly deal with your stress and your anxiety. I saw just this week the real piece of advice to consider as a means of dealing with quote, societal anxiety consider factoring into your diet a probiotic yogurt. (laughs) That was the real piece of advice being issued in print. As if the probiotic yogurt is somehow going to address heart issues that are so deep And so overwhelming for some. You see, this industry is making promises that it cannot fulfill, but it is successful because it's addressing a need that we all feel so acutely. And Jesus says, here's the solution. Know that you are a child of God. That is the solution to your anxiety. Know that you are a child of God. Race into the doctrine of your adoption. Go again to the cross of Jesus Christ and gaze upon him and say, Christ has purchased for me sonship. I have a heavenly father who hears me, who knows me, and who cares for me. He knows what your needs are. And if you can saturate your mind and your heart in the truth of your adoption. Oh, how freeing that will be to you. How freeing that truth is intended to be for your life. You see, the very next thing Jesus says, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You see how there are implications that immediately flow out of an anxiety-free existence. Don't be anxious and seek first the kingdom of God. Again, this is in one sense exactly the same blueprint that Jesus gave us for praying. Don't pray like the Gentiles do. You're a child of God. Priority number one, seek the kingdom of heaven. Priority number one, let your kingdom come. Jesus gives to us that which is of the utmost importance to God the Father as a means of praying and of living. I wonder if you've ever thought about the Lord's Prayer as a means to tackling your anxiety. I think Jesus gives that to us, at least in part for that very reason. It is to be a great comforting prayer There are echoes of it here in verse 32 as he speaks about anxiety. Pray the Lord's Prayer. And you say, but I come to that prayer and I'm so overwhelmed by anxiety and I can't honestly say that my priorities are in line with God's priorities as they're shown in this prayer. Pray the prayer. Pray that prayer and allow the words of Scripture to instruct, to inform, and to lead your heart in proper thinking. Don't wait until your heart is right there with Jesus' priorities and say, now I can pray this prayer. Pray it now. Amidst all of your anxious thoughts, pray that prayer and allow the words of Scripture to lead your heart in right thinking. And then, all these things will be added to you. Well, those are a difficult few words that Jesus decided to add on the end there. What does that mean? All these things will be added to you. It doesn't mean that you'll receive everything that you desire if somehow you're able to prioritize the kingdom and God's righteousness first, then everything that you've ever desired will be given to you. It doesn't mean that. To form a theology on any doctrine. You need to step back and consider what all of Scripture has to say about it as we think about the truth of God's providence brought into view here in the second part of verse 33. All these things will be added to you, God's providence. If you want to form a theology of God's providence, you can't just camp out here. You need to step back and examine what all of Scripture says. So it doesn't mean that you'll be given everything you've ever desired, but the context is so key. Jesus wants us to be single-minded. He wants us to think and to live and to breathe in accordance with the way that God thinks. Our priorities are to match His. Our desires are to match His. He wants us to submit joyfully to the plan that God has put in place. And with that context established, Jesus, when he says all these things will be added to you, is teaching us, you will be given exactly what you need in order to fulfill your part in the plan as God has determined it. God has determined how you will contribute to the progression of redemptive history. He has determined what is your gifting and how you will serve the church, and He will give you everything you need to fulfill your God-ordained position perfectly. He will add to you everything you need to fulfill your part in the plan if you but would but first seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Don't be anxious because you're a child of God. Finally, number six, do not be anxious because there is work to do. Verse 34, Jesus says for a third time, do not be anxious. Jesus is for you. He's not against you. If you're carrying a burden of anxiety this morning, in any area of your life, It doesn't please Jesus. And he wants more than you do for you to be free of it. Three times he says, don't be anxious. The third time, he brings into view an argument centered around time. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. There is a difference between Anxiety and fear. Fear, most ordinarily, is a response to a real objective reality in the present. Fear, sometimes misplaced, inappropriate, unreasonable, sometimes not, is usually a response to that which is right before us, an objective reality. Anxiety is always forward-oriented. Anxiety is always speculative. Anxiety is always casting forward to the next thing which has not yet become a reality, and it is pondering what might come to pass. And so, sadly, our anxieties are often born out of that which is unreasonable. It's unreasonable that things would play out in this particular way, and yet I'm going to fixate on that small possibility and allow it to eat me up from the inside. Re- anxiety is forward looking, it is speculative. And it can cause you to be highly inefficient, unproductive, even paralyze you. Because it takes your eyes off of the thing which is right before you. It stops you considering that which is truly right before you, which is a reality, and in some way you have a responsibility towards it. You are no longer focusing on that as God would intend, but you are allowing your mind to project forward in a speculative manner and be consumed about what might be. And Jesus says, Don't do that. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Stop your mind going there. Tomorrow is going to take care of itself. But then there is this implied command in the very last thing he says, Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. It's not sufficient for the day is its own anxieties. But sufficient for the day is its own troubles, its own affairs, its own labors. Meaning, there are things to focus on and be concerned about and give your attention to. In a way that fully trusts God and acknowledges his providence and his plan, there are real things that God sets before you that he desires for you to give your attention to. It is sufficient for the day, its own troubles. Now go out and work. You see, Jesus' argument here in this last verse switches from giving us the grounds by which we may not be anxious to the goal of being free from anxiety. Up until now, he keeps laying a theological framework, a foundation, and we can ponder it and take it in, and by God's grace, we can be free from anxiety. And then his last comment, he transitions to say, there's a reason you should do this. There's a reason that you should be serious about tackling your anxiety because there is work to do. There is labor that has been set before you for the good of the gospel and for the glory of Christ. And God desires that you would be much about his work. He has saved you so as to serve. And Jesus says, now stop being anxious about tomorrow and get on with the task at hand. At the very end of this gospel, Jesus will commission his disciples to go out unto all the nations to teach that which he has taught them, to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to build the church. That is the great task that sits before everyone this morning who is found in Christ and to think that you would not be about that labor, that glorious commission because somewhere in your life you've allowed anxiety to rise up and paralyze you. Jesus would not have that. He desires that you are free from anxiety, not merely because there is more to life, though there is. Not merely because he wants you to flourish, though he does. Not merely because he desires for you more joy than you yourself desire, though he does, but because there is work to be done. There is a labor that has been set before us, and he does not want for anxiety to hold us back. So do not be anxious. Don't be anxious because life is more. Don't be anxious because your father has a plan. Don't be anxious. You're not in control. Don't be anxious because God is wise. Don't be anxious because you're a child of God. Don't be anxious Because there's work to do. Would you pray with me in closing? Father, I pray this morning that we would be free from anxiety. You know our hearts, you know what we bring here, you know the burdens that we carry. Would there be a letting go of anxiety this morning? Father, I pray that there is something that I have said, something in this text that ministers to those who are paralyzed by anxiety. You know our hearts better than we do. Holy Spirit, minister to us we would not be anxious, we would live the life that you desire us to live, flourishing, joy-filled, laboring for the fame of Christ. May we not be anxious, in Jesus' name.